Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Religious Faith, Worthless or Faultless? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 2nd, 2012. The little epistle of James has had a sketchy history in the church. Some people think that it's more like Jewish wisdom literature than the Christian gospel. Except for two passing references, there's no mention of Jesus. Others have said that James's emphasis on human works contradicts Paul's insistence on divine grace. The Muratorian fragment from the year 170 AD, for example, our oldest list of the books of the New Testament, does not include James. Writing in the 4th century, the church historian Eusebius admitted that James was accepted by many, but he still relegated it to the category of what he called contested writings. In the late 4th century, Jerome said that James was accepted by the church little by little. And in the 16th century, Martin Luther famously described James as an epistle of straw. But James did make it into the canon of the 27 books of the New Testament, of course, and I'm glad it did. His practical or ethical emphasis reminds us that following Jesus is a way of life and not just a theoretical construct. He writes about trials and temptations, showing partiality to the rich and oppressing the poor listening to others rather than always talking, saying versus doing, bitter envy and selfish ambition, and our need for a wisdom that's far different from the wisdom of the world. The reading for this week emphasizes a special danger for religious people, self-deception. Sincerity and earnestness are necessary components of a life of faith, but they're by no means sufficient. James reminds us three times that it's very easy to deceive yourself. This is hard to admit to yourself, and even harder to detect in its many guises. Don't be deceived, writes James in 1.16. All the good gifts in your life come from the Father above. <clears throat> in a striking description, James says that God gives generously to all without finding fault. So in the Christian scheme of things, the myth of the self-made person is just that, a myth. It's a self-deception. In a recent column well worth reading, David Brooks of the New York Times examines what he calls the credit illusion. A reader called Confused in Columbus said that he had built a successful business, but he wondered who should get the credit. On the one hand, Obama gave a speech that emphasized the social and political forces in success. On the other, Romney said that cultural traits favored Israelis over Palestinians. So, he wondered, how much of my success is me, and how much comes from outside forces? 
Brooks explores the successive phases of deepening wisdom. In your 20s, you begin with the illusion that you are in complete control of your life and thus deserve all the credit. In your 30s and 40s, you realize that institutional forces have shaped your life for good and ill. In your 50s and 60s, you discover how much you've benefited from personal relationships and professional mentors. And then in your 70s and 80s, you acknowledge how the ancient traditions of your people shaped you. In short, concludes Brooks, as maturity develops and their perspectives widen, the smaller the power of the individual appears and the greater the power of those forces flowing through the individual. <coughs> Don't deceive yourself, James repeats in chapter 122, turning his kaleidoscope for a different perspective. Don't merely listen to the gospel story and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. To listen without doing is like looking at your face in a mirror, walking away, and then forgetting what you look like. This second deception echoes the words of Jesus himself. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Luke 6, 46. In the gospel for this week, Jesus similarly contrasts external ritual purity with genuine interior piety, vainly honoring God with our lips while our hearts are badly estranged. Don't be deceived, says James. Listening and doing are different things. And then a third time. You deceive yourself if you consider yourself religious and, you, and yet do not keep a tight rein on your tongue. James contrasts what he calls worthless religion with the faultless religion of caring for widows and orphans. In his third chapter, James will compare the power of speech to a bit in a horse's mouth, a small rudder that steers a large ship or a tiny spark that ignites a huge forest fire. This too harkens back to Jesus in the Gospels, who warns about calling a fellow human being a fool. Somehow, and to some extent, what we say indicates who we are, and that can be a scary thought. In his latest novel, The Sense of an Ending, the British writer Julian Barnes explores the relationship between personal memory and self-identity. To some extent, we are who we remember ourselves to be. As the story unfolds, we learn how problematic memory is. Memory can be self-serving, whether consciously or unconsciously. It's selective, partial, even involuntary. There are some things we can never forget and others we can never remember, with no obvious reason for either case. The protagonist in the story, Tony, is thus worried about remembering rightly, but he finds that difficult precisely because of the threat of self-deception. 
Does he suffer from self-serving nostalgia when he tries to remember his life 40 years ago? He says, I don't want to deceive myself sentimentally about something that wasn't even true at the time. And then later in the story, Tony is presented with a toxic letter that he wrote in anger long ago, but had since forgotten. This letter from his younger self shocked his older self. He says, All I could plead was that I had been its author back then, but was not its author now. Indeed, I didn't recognize that part of myself from which the letter came. But perhaps this too was simply further self-deception. And so the ultimate themes of Barnes's novel is how the vagaries of memory and the threat of self-deception lead to tragic remorse about who you really are or who you think you were. When I was in graduate school, I came across a prayer by Kierkegaard that I liked so much that my wife printed it in calligraphy. For many years, it hung in my office. I think of it as a prayer regarding self-deception. First the German and then an English translation. Herr, gib uns blude Augen für Dinge, die nicht taugen, in Augen voller Klarheit, in alle deine Wahrheit. Lord, give us weak eyes for things that don't matter, in eyes full of clarity in all your truth. James warns us about the power of self-deception, but we can also go to the opposite extreme of obsessive self-analysis. May the Spirit of God give us more self-understanding and less self-consciousness for a life of faith that is more faultless and less worthless. <clears throat> for books this week, I review a title called Font of Life, Ambrose, Augustine, and the Mystery of Baptism. The author is Gary Wills, New York, Oxford University Press, 2012, 194 pages. Most people who visit the Milan Cathedral, which dates to 1386 and is the fourth largest cathedral in the world, head to the rooftop where they enjoy a bird's eye view of the city. But when Gary Wills visited, he went down through a little-known entrance that leads underneath the church to a sunken cathedral and baptistry beneath the piazza. This subterranean church was discovered by accident in 1943 by workers who were digging a bomb shelter during the war. It was later determined that this massive edifice, which held 3,000 people, was built in the middle of the 4th century and pastored by none other than the great Bishop Ambrose of Milan. Next to this underground basilica is an octagonal building containing a baptistry pool 20 feet in diameter. This is probably where Ambrose himself was baptized in the year 374, and it's most certainly where on Easter morning, April 25 in the year 387, 
that the 33-year-old St. Augustine was baptized by Ambrose, an event that foreshadowed so much of Western Christianity. This symbolic site is archaeological grist for the theological mill of Gary Wills. As he does in all his many books, he brings a prodigious amount of linguistic, historical, and bibliographical scholarship to his task. The first part of this short book considers Ambrose, Bishop of Milan for a little over 20 years, from 374 to 397. There he famously prevailed in three clashes with the emperors. Eventually, Augustine found his way to Milan, and eventually he found his way to Ambrose, although he tells us that it was the priest Simplician who played the most important role in his conversion, not the busy and inaccessible Ambrose. But once he declared for Christian baptism, Augustine sat for 60 sessions of baptismal teaching and 30 days under Ambrose. There, the great takeaway, says Wills, was an introduction to the allegorical method of reading the Jewish scriptures, which scriptures had otherwise stymied Augustine. Wills then takes us through the successive steps leading up to and through baptism for Augustine and his fellow converts. Another week of instruction followed the baptism. In the last part of the book, Wills follows St. Augustine to Hippo, where he too became a bishop. He contrasts Ambrose's sacramental maximalism, full of Trinitarian dogma to his, due to his battle with the Donatists, to what he calls Augustine's minimalism, which denied the physical presence of Christ in the Eucharist, due to his different struggles with the Donatists and the Pelagians. After his baptism, Augustine had no contact with Ambrose, nor did he quote or even cite the Bishop of Milan, the two were different in temperament, context, and reputation. Ambrose was an extroverted force. Augustine was a man of inwardness who wrote what many consider the first autobiography. But at the end of the day, in his own tenure at Hippo, he followed his elder priest in legal tactics, the allegorical reading of scripture, the incorporation of relics and miracles, even invoking Ambrose's authority in his battle against the Pelagians, all of which began in what is now a font of baptismal life beneath the massive cathedral of Milan. The author is Gary Wills. The title, Font of Life. <clears throat> For films this week, we go to the continent of Africa in the country of Malawi. The title of the film, I Am Because We Are, 2008. The singer Madonna makes an easy target. She's been much maligned for her work in Malawi, where she adopted two children, and in 2012 for having ostensibly abandoned previous commitments that she had made there to build schools. She insists that her work in Malawi continues in new and better ways. Nonetheless, I was very glad that I watched this documentary film that Madonna wrote and produced about Malawi. As you might expect for someone like her, it's a first-class production. 
Malawi is a country of 12 million people with a million HIV orphans. Madonna herself narrates only parts of the film and only appears at the beginning and the end. Instead, for the most part, she lets the Africans tell their own stories and then draws upon interviews with people like Jeff Sachs, Desmond Tutu, Paul Farmer, and similar experts and advocates. Matthew's Chikananda, Malawi's former finance minister, is the most eloquent of all. He acknowledges that Malawi has suffered horribly, but he categorically rejects victimization and scapegoating. The country bears its own responsibilities. The still photographs alone, especially those in black and white, make this film worth watching. Although the graphic images might not be appropriate, for younger children. The title of the film is a Zulu proverb. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. From the country of Malawi, I am because we are. And for poetry this week, in keeping with the emphasis in James on oppressing the poor and remembering orphans, in Madonna's film, Malawi Orphans, we've posted a poem by Clarabelle Allegria. Clarabelle Allegria was born in 1924 to Nicaraguan and Salvadorian parents. She moved to the United States in 1943. In 1985, she moved back to Nicaragua. Her work was featured in a Bill Moyers PBS series called The Language of Life. Her 40 books of poem, fiction, nonfiction, and children's stories have been translated into more than 10 languages. The author Clarabelle Allegria, the title of her poem, From the Bridge. I never found the order I searched for but always a sinister and well-planned disorder that increases in the hands of those who hold power, while the others who clamor for a more kindly world, a world with less hunger and more hopefulness, die of torture in the prisons. Don't come any closer. There is a stench of carrion surrounding me. Clarabelle Allegria from the bridge. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 2nd, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.